Welcome to He Sang, She Sang. I'm Mike Schaub. And I'm Marin Lazian. And today we are joined by WQXR Morning Show host Jeff Spurgeon. Hey, Jeff. Hey. How's it going? Good. Nice to be here. On the show today, we're going to be talking about Engelbert Humperdinck's opera, Hansel and Gretel. So everybody knows the story, right? It's two kids, Hansel and Gretel. They live with their dad and their stepmom during a time of famine. And the stepmom is concerned that mom and dad are going to starve. So she convinces dad to abandon the kids in the woods, right? So dad takes them out to the woods. Um, They can't find their way home. They wander around for a while, and they run into a candy house. While they're eating the candy house, the resident comes out, who turns out to be a cannibalistic witch, and she lures them into the house. She turns Gretel into her slave, and she starts to fatten up Hansel so that she can eat them. And this goes on for a while. Eventually, she's ready to cook the kids. She starts the fire. She gets it nice and hot. Somehow, Gretel flips the script and pushes the witch into the oven, killing the witch, freeing the kids. They steal the witch's treasure. They go home. Stepmother's dead. And they all live happily ever after with their dad and their riches. That's the story, right? That's pretty much it. That's the Brothers Grimm story. And who are the Brothers Grimm? Well, the Brothers Grimm were two brothers in Germany in the 19th century. They collected and published a whole bunch of fairy stories. So, so many of those stories that we know um, came to us in, in Grimm's fairy tale versions through the years. So stories like Hansel and Gretel... Cinderella, lots of them, lots of them. The Grimm's were all over this stuff. They loved it. And the opera is sort of the same, but there are some important differences. There are. So, for instance, in the Grimm story, it is an evil stepmother. But when Humperdinck was writing the opera, he wanted to make it a little bit more audience-friendly. So he took some of the darker elements out of it. So instead of this evil stepmother, we have the children's actual mother. Instead of being evil and wanting to send the kids away... She actually just gets upset and sends them out to pick some strawberries. So she's really not so bad in this opera. So, like, in the opera, there's still, like, a cannibalistic crazy witch that tries to eat the kids? <laughs> there is, although there's a, there's a little bit of a twist. Um, when she puts the kids in the oven, they actually sort of magically turn into gingerbread. So you don't have this gruesome eating children, flesh and all. You have the idea of her eating gingerbread children it's like the Brothers Grimm meets, like, the Nutcracker. <laughs> yeah, yeah kind of. A little bit like that. Yeah, it's, it's part of the reason that the opera is so festive, because you can bring in all these little holiday elements. And so, yeah, gingerbread cookie, yes, one of the children who was imprisoned by the witch and turned back into a child at the end of the opera by Hansel and Gretel. Sounds delicious. How does the witch fare in the opera? Not so well. She ends up in the oven herself. On the other hand, there's a wonderful witch byproduct at the end uh, because the oven explodes at the end and she turns into a big pile of gingerbread. We don't actually see them eat it. I imagine it wouldn't taste good, but it's very pretty on the opera stage. So how did Hansel and Gretel become an opera? Engelbert Humperdinck's sister wanted to write a play for children and she asked her brother to compose some music for it. So he did, and they put on this play for her kids. It was like a puppet theater at home. Exactly. But then he kept kind of sketching out bigger and bigger ideas, musical ideas for this piece, until over time it finally became a full-scale opera. It was just four songs at the start, and then it became what they call a zingspiel, which is sort of like a musical, some talk, some singing. And then, but Humperdinck liked it, so he kept working away at it, even delayed his marriage, and his fiance was okay with that while he was working on this opera and doing a whole bunch of other stuff, too. That's commitment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when was all this happening? When, when was Humperdinck like a thing? And this is Humperdinck the first, right? Not the, not the Humperdinck that 
The British pop star? That's out there making yeah. music today, right? No, not that guy. Okay. I wasn't sure. Well, now you know. There are two of them, improbably. <laughs> are they related? Not at all. I don't not believe so. Okay, no. well, we can do a musical comparison on another program. <laughs> well, the German Engelbert Humperdinck, he was living right around the time of Wagner, actually, and they were kind of close. So this opera was written in 1891, 1892, premiered in 1893, which is the year that Wagner died. And the two of them had actually met... Humperdinck was traveling around Italy. He decided he wanted to stop in and and meet Wagner, who was one of his musical idols. Wagner was sick at the time, wasn't really accepting visitors, but he gave in just because of the pure charm of this visiting card that Humperdinck left, which read, Member of the Order of the Grail. That was a reference to Parsifal. And Parsifal is a Wagner opera. Yeah, that's right. It is. So they met, and actually Humperdinck ended up working on Parsifal. Well, like as a stage manager or something? Well, the European term is repetiteur. So he was he sort of taught part of the opera, hmm. um, helped prepare uh, some, some choruses for it, and, and worked on the rehearsals. It takes a lot of people to put on a really great opera in a big house. And so he was one of the assistants. Loved Wagner, admired his music, and at least one critic has said that Hansel and Gretel is, in fact, Wagner's most beautiful opera. <laughs> So yeah, they were they were really living at the same time, and this opera came into popularity just shortly after Wagner died. So you have all of the traces of that really Wagnerian German music in this opera, but also more than that, it also weaves in these fantastic German folk songs as well, um, which is in keeping with the whole fairy tale theme, but it brings it all together and makes it something that's a little like Wagner and also something totally different. Was Humperdinck a one-hit wonder? No, he wrote a number of other things. He was a prize-winning composer, got to travel through Europe because of prizes that he won, and he wrote some other shows, but this is the one that has lasted. So he was not at all a, one, a one-hit wonder. At least not at the time. Right, but this is the piece that's really survived. What are some of the best musical moments from Hansel and Gretel? Well, I don't know, Marin, what do you love the most? And should we mention now that Marin knows this opera really well? Because, I do. Because you sang Hansel or Gretel? I sang Gretel. Wait, guys, I thought we were keeping this a secret. Oh. <laughs> were we? Were we? Cats out of the bag. Okay. Too right. late. Right. I, I was once Gretel. And you directed a production of it, and too? And I did. I both sang and directed on different occasions productions by Amore Opera, which is a small company here in New York. Right. So what's your favorite part? What's Gretel's best part? Well, so I have a few favorite parts. Um... But I would say the latter part of Act 2 of this show, basically when the kids are off in the woods and... And Hansel's being turned into foie gras? Or is this, <laughs> Not <laughs> is this quite before yet. he's force-fed? This is, this is before he's force-fed. This okay. all all before the witch. Okay. They're lost in the woods and they're absolutely terrified. And the music becomes really dramatic. It kind of reaches this fever pitch of fear and desperation and these kids screaming out for their parents. I love that part because it's just so dramatic. But then it moves seamlessly into an aria sung by a character called the Sandman, who's also not in the Grimm story. But he comes and he calms the children down and throws magic sleep sand in their eyes. 
which then leads to them singing this famous evening prayer, which is just this quiet, subtle, beautiful moment with these two siblings coming together and falling asleep in the woods. So that whole sequence of music, right from you know, terror to the peace of sleep, is just musical wonder after musical wonder. Well, I love the nursery rhymes that are in, in the very beginning. When we first see Hansel and Gretel, they're, they're in the house, and they're really hungry. And so to sort of take their minds off their hunger, they're, they're, and they're working. They're both supposed to be working there messing around, but they're both supposed to be working, and they're singing these sweet little nursery rhymes, and and the libretto, which was written by Humperdinck's sister, has these sweet little rhymes, and if it's done in English, they'll hold the rhyme scheme, which is very charming for children. It gives the ear, the, the kid's ears, something to hang on to, but also it's very sweet music. They kind of interrupt each other. It's very simple and very beautiful at the same time, and I love those moments. The children at the time, and the adults too at the time, would, would, have, have, known. would have been familiar with that music, right. and that added a layer of... Authenticity, Authenticity and it. familiarity yeah. to it. You take a familiar tune and then and then you dress it up in in the guise of beautiful orchestral music, and so it becomes even richer than it was. But it retains that essence of folk music, and that is a is a really charming thing. And it's very central to this opera, which was also Strauss, who conducted the first performance, praised it and said this is a great German opera, and it was appreciated for that. That's cool. Richard Strauss conducted the first performance? Yeah. He did. He wasn't really supposed to, but they had a problem. There was a flu epidemic in the town where they were supposed to do the original performance. So they had to cancel it. And Strauss had read it. It, um, Homperdinck had sent the score to Strauss, and he read it, and he sent back a glowing letter. A glowing letter. It had to be. In fact, Humperdinck said it was one of the best prizes he ever won, was this letter <laughs> from Strauss saying, what a beautiful opera you have written. And he would he was very happy to direct the first performance, which some of the parts of it were not fabulous, but the orchestral playing was terrific. Actually, speaking of the orchestral music, Jeff, that just reminded me, uh, another one of my favorite moments in this piece is the dream pantomime. And it happens after the children have sung their lullaby and they've fallen asleep. And they dream that these 14 angels come down to watch over them. And the music in that section, kind of like the overture, is just, it's full of the themes of the opera, and it's just really beautiful. You might like that, too.
when did this thing premiere? So it premiered on December 23rd in 1893, so Christmas Eve Eve, at the Court Theater in Weimar. And ever since that time, it's really been associated with Christmas. A lot of the subsequent premieres have happened around Christmas. It was the first complete opera to be broadcast from the Metropolitan Opera Live, you know, this series that we're actually talking about right now. And that was on Christmas Day in 1931. Ever since then, it has been associated with Christmas. It was actually also the first live broadcast of a full opera um, from a European opera house. So this opera is kind of the heart of a lot of big first moments in opera radio broadcasting. This year it is on Christmas Eve. Yeah, that's and it's real sweet that it happens to be on a Saturday. So it's the <laughs> it's the perfect opera for Christmas Eve. Children lost in the woods, fearing for their lives, being threatened by a witch who will eat them. I don't know. That just evokes Christmas to me, doesn't it, to you? <laughs> it, it is pretty crazy, but when you were telling that story, I was thinking to myself, man, thank God, like, you know, Tristan and Isolde or Salome <laughs> was a program <laughs> right. on Christmas Eve, and like, that turned out to be the Christmas opera. So, yeah, right. that's pretty right. cool. So this production we're going to hear on Saturday was done in 2008. Is this the, the sort of industrial chic version of it? It's a wonderful production, which in the third act, when we meet the witch and go to the gingerbread house, is full of fantastic characters, giant heads on these on these children on stage, on these figures that are that are part of it. So it's it's absurd and really delightful to see. And the other thing that I think is really distinctive about this particular performance that we'll hear is the witch is not sung by a woman, but instead by a man, Philip Langridge. Philip Langridge. Um, the late, late Philip Langridge. Yeah. He was really celebrated in this role. He managed to just be completely over the top, performing the music beautifully, but making the witch come alive. Um, and it's really interesting to have a man... It's the opposite of a trouser role. Instead of a woman in an opera singing the role of a man, we have a man in this opera singing the role of a woman. But this opera does also have a trouser role. The characters of Hansel and Gretel are played by Alice Coote, who plays Hansel, a mezzo-soprano, and Christine Schaefer, who plays Gretel. And the Sandman is a trouser role, too. The Sandman is also a trouser role, yeah. It's a short, it's a, it's a one-piece role, not a lot, but, but it's a trouser role, too. So Hansel and Gretel, they're kids... Does that mean that uh, it's like an easier opera to sing? <laughs> uh, no. It's, it's sort of deceptively difficult in a way. Um, and it's interesting. You know, you have to have adult singers play these kids in part because it is difficult to sing. You have this really rich, lush instrumentation that's dense at times, not all the time, but you need a voice that's mature enough and trained enough to be able to sing this opera. Also, singers who can portray children. So it's not easy to sing, but people who do it well make it look easy. And they've got a lot to do. There's a lot of dancing that happens on stage for those kids and for the witch. And, you know, they have to capture a spirit of, of playfulness at times. And all of the, the fears and anxieties and um, just general raucousness of childhood. But it's not easy to sing, and the singers who do it have to bring it all together. And the other reason that adults have to sing it is that you can't have a man sing a child's role. The voice just doesn't quite work. I don't know. I suppose you could do a two-counter-tenor version of Hansel and Gretel, but countertenors haven't been back in the world for that long, so maybe that hasn't been thought of or done yet. You know, that's never occurred to me, but you, you could. There's no reason why you couldn't do so, that. Well, if it happens, it wasn't my fault. <laughs> I just want to deny, <laughs> deny that right now. We all heard it here, yeah. Jeff. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so is this an opera 
for kids. I mean, everything that I'm hearing is like, it's gory, it's dark. So are the fairy tales. Is this for kids? Well, yeah, the fairy tales are for children. They're really for families. I would say both the fairy tale and the opera are really for both kids and adults. You know, ultimately, it's kind of a hero story. And in this case, the heroes are kids. But but they are. You know, they have to go out into the woods to meet the witch, to to suffer and become mature. And once they do that, they're able to, to find their way out of the woods. They're able to come up with the plan to save themselves. And they don't just save themselves. They save all of the other victims of this witch as well. There's a children's chorus um, at the end of this opera, which I think both appeals to kids and it appeals to their parents. Uh, not just the parents who have kids singing in it, but, you know, you have this chorus of, of sweet children singers I there. think you said it right the first time. <laughs> and Gretel are the heroes of this story, and they, they go through a lot in order to come out on the other side, and I think that appeals to everyone. Who's the bigger hero, Marin? Hansel or Gretel? Well, I think we all know it's Gretel. <laughs> I mean, I think it's Gretel, too. <laughs> I think that Hansel is braver, because he doesn't seem nervous when they're in the forest. He's like, yeah, it's kind of we're in kind of trouble, but it's going to be okay. But Gretel's the smart one. She gets them out of the, she gets them out of the problem. She so, does. So I think that even though your point of view, Marin, is completely prejudiced because you've sung the role of Gretel, <laughs> I think that your conclusion is absolutely correct and Gretel is the bigger of the two heroes. Well, I believe I was taking an objective perspective, <laughs> okay. but whatever you say, Jeff. Okay. <laughs> you know, the more I hear about this thing, the more I'm thinking that um, this is kind of like the blueprint for a whole bunch of child hero movies. I mean, from The Goonies to The Lost Boys to Harry Potter, you know, it's two kids that go off on an adventure, run into a bad guy, have to figure out how to defeat the bad guy, and make it home. Well, as it turns out, the story of Hansel and Gretel, even though it's a German fairy tale, and that's the version that we know best, this story is in all kinds of cultures. And the folklorists have found it in not just Western culture, but in other civilizations around the world. There is a story like this, and often there is a cannibal who the kids have to be in opposition to. And and it is a sort of a little coming-of-age thing or a little development of maturity and self-reliance like Marin was talking about. But it is, to that degree, it's not just a German tale. It's really a human story. A little insight to the story and history of the human tale that is Hansel and Gretel on He Sang, She Sang. And now we have some more insight for you. We're going to speak with opera stage director Mary Birnbaum. She's an acting teacher at Juilliard, and she directed Hansel and Gretel in Houston a couple of years ago. But she actually fell in love with this opera a long time ago. When I was in sixth grade, I remember donning like a lederhosen dress to be in the old Met production with Don Upshaw and Jennifer Larmore in the kids' chorus. What's it like being in the children's chorus? In the olden days, there was a woman named Elena Doria, who was the chorus master, who was very famous. She actually had a hat that had stitched into it, smile, damn it. Um, <laughs> she was kind of She was kind of the most rigid, artistic, 
mentor that I think any young person could really hope for. And I know that from the people who I've stayed in touch with and the people who are still in the arts from the Met Children's Chorus, everyone cites her as one of their early examples of how to live in the arts and how to be a rigorous artist. I mean, the thing that I think stays with me today is that they treated us like adults and like um, professional artists, because you never know what wisdom young people have on their own. Yeah. Is this a children's opera? Is it an opera for adults? Who is this for? Yeah, I love that question because I think that it's a very grown-up opera for children. It's so dark. It has so many elements of ambivalence, which I think all the great masterpieces have, particularly when it comes to the kid's home life. You know, in the fairy tale, I think there's a little bit more of a tendency to say home is the good place and the witch's house is the bad place. And here it's about... For the two kids, it's about going home, but it's about going to a home that they don't actually already have. And so they almost like create this new home in a forest. So I think for me, what I found emotionally resonant about the piece is this idea of creating a home and locating yourself in the world as an adult. And I think that that is where it sort of transcends. Is it a children's opera? Is it an adult's opera? Because it really does that. That thing that few operas do in terms of appealing to such a wide swath of people. Yeah. What do you think? Do you think it's a kid's opera? I think that it tells a story that's familiar to kids. So it gives kids an immediate hook into the show. The fact that they come in knowing the story means that it makes it just that little bit more accessible. But it seems like a story about maturing, Mm. you know? Yes, growing up for sure. Right. So... I guess maybe that's why it's appealing to both children and adults. It's because it does actually bridge the moment that these children go from being just innocent kids in their way to having a more adult perspective. And it also, I don't know, it seems like it's part morality play, part cautionary tale. Absolutely, yeah. And part hero story. For sure. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with you. So hero stories are for adults, too. We need them. We yeah. need them right now. We do. <laughs> what do you think is that transformation? What's the heart of the transformation for them? And is there a moment that it happens? I think it's when Gretel... Well, the the first hero moment is when she gets Hansel out of the cage, I think. And the second one is when they both scheme to throw the witch in the oven. And I think those having their sort of metal tested so much by someone so scary and someone who's in a position of authority who who weirdly mirrors their mom and how mean she is to them in Act One, they kind of learn to have a spine in their real life through the intervention of magic. The profundity of that is like it carries the lessons they learn from bonding to sort of conquer the witch, the problem of the witch, um, which is sort of like in every kid's life there is a witch, right, in some way, really I think carries through to the very end of the opera when the parents re-find them and, and their parents are seeing them as people who have 
experience the wide world and who have defeated something actual, you know, and something something that the dad has sung about with so much fear in his voice yeah. in Act One that he that they live in fear of. Something about seeing your progeny go into the world and do the thing that you are most afraid of, that is also like such a cool um, reversal, I think, at the end. The kids slayed the father's dragons in a way. Exactly, exactly. And the societal dragons, too. Like, I mean, I love the idea of woman as both other and also a stand-in for something unknown. Um, In all these, I mean, so many operas, it's like, the female character who's the witch or who's the sorceress that unknown other that like women represent for people is really it's a really fascinating thing particularly when you're having two women as the kids um, right fighting their own yeah fighting their own other whatever that means yeah yeah other slash mother right slash exactly exactly so this witch how dark is she for you how funny i think her music is so poppy in a way that to me the power of her is that she seems so fun and unlike the mom she from the very beginning you're like oh this person's music is great like i want to be inside of this sound world for a while think we have to almost think that it might be a good thing if the kids lived with her. Right. The, to me, I think that's the desired effect so that it's horrifying when we realize the plan is <laughs> dinner. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a more general question about directing opera, um, because I think people wonder, you know, what, what exactly does a stage director do in an opera? <laughs> I Not wonder that, they that sometimes. <laughs> um, how much do you get to influence what the set looks like? How much do you get to influence the overall design? How much is that integrated with your ideas for characters and and all of it? To me, uh, design is everything. I mean, obviously, acting work, I teach acting. I'm a big believer in powerful, good acting. But to set up a space that feels like transformation can occur and a space that's magical and that is um, poetic in a way is that's everything. And so I work really hard with designers and they they work really hard with me to make sure we find a space together and we talk about moments in the piece and how we can tell the story we want to tell through uh, ideas about space and ideas about clothing and ideas about light. So... Uh, I don't use projections a lot, and I think, and it's kind of a conscious choice about being present in the 21st century, which is a is sort of a. It's almost impossible. It's, yeah, it's really at a premium, and I think it's something that the live arts can do. We can really provide that, so I can do that when it really when the piece really calls for it. Mm-hmm. But there's something so beautiful and essential about just having performers, you know, no technology. Um, no more screens. No more screens. Just for exactly. a few hours, exactly. no screens. Right. 
So why direct opera rather than non-musical plays and stories? And I know you've done both, but what do you think opera specifically and, and music brings to storytelling that you can't capture in other ways? Well, I... This I'm going to answer via sort of a story. Um, this summer I was in Taiwan directing Otello, an Italian opera, with no Italians in the show, a Taiwanese conductor, uh, and a couple Taiwanese singers, a Russian Yago, a Slovak Otello, a Romanian Greek Desdemona, me as the only American, and a Canadian, fabulous Canadian chorus master who's actually now the head coach at LA Opera. And it was the most amazing cross-cultural conversation that was 100% given to us, granted to us, by the international language of music. You know, and the idea that these people from all different corners of the planet who have so many different experiences and so many different points of view on the world can all come together and do something that we all love and all share. To me, that is the bonus of opera always. It's the international aspect of it. It's the fact that music crosses cultural lines and makes people comfortable with things that they might not be in their real real lives. It's a, it's a dialogue starter, for sure. I mean, we had political discussions there that um, were so f- interesting and came from such a place of respect because we had the art in common. So to me, that's that's why opera and any art that can cross borders or boundaries is the right thing to be thinking about. Yeah. Also, in opera, it's already poetic. It's already abstract. They're singing. It's like, no, no, it's something completely different that has a scale and a proportion to it that is about archetype and it's about life and issues that are common to humans um, and not just about this one person's really idiosyncratic experience at this time in their life when they went through a divorce or whatever and were sitting on their couch. It's, it's, (laughs) you know, it's about the common condition of being a human. And I think that that is just all good opera is really about that. Yep. So thank you, Mary Birnbaum, for coming in to talk to me today. Thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. So fun. Before we go, we have some YouTube picks for you to get you even more familiar with Hansel and Gretel. Uh, Jeff, what'd you pick for us? I picked Please Release Me because I think that Engelbert Humperdinck sang that better than almost anything he did, except maybe the last. Oh, wait. Sorry. Wrong Eng- Engelbert Humperdinck. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> um, um, the, the scene that I picked was actually the evening prayer, which is the end of Act Two. Marin was talking about the angels that come down. In 2008, the Royal Opera House did a production, and I just think that these two voices are so beautiful together. It's Diana Damrau and Angelica Kirschlager. And you get the evening prayer scene. You also get to see the 14 angels come out. The stage effects are really beautiful. The Sandman is this curious little puppet character. It's really a really a nice production. But the voices of these two together, really sublime stuff. Mm. Marin, what about you? I chose a video that's a pretty long selection from the Mets production of this opera. Um, you have the overture, which doesn't have a video to it per se, but then the video shifts into actual video of the children's evening prayer and then the pantomime. And instead of there being actual angels, there are these big chef figures with big chef hats that come on and they set a table full of food for these children who are starving. starving. Mm -hmm. And 
it all moves very slowly. It's very dreamlike, but you you get to watch them put on some really nice clothes and have this enormous feast, and it's lots of fun to watch. And I chose a scene where the witch, uh, played by a man in this video, Robert Brubaker, mm-hmm. is getting ready to eat Hansel. He's a... Uh, she... How do you refer to the witch? <laughs> <laughs> the witch is uh, is dancing around the chef's table, getting all the ingredients ready, and, you know, Hansel's laying there on the table, and um, and just the performance, the craziness of this man playing a witch in drag. I mean, he's got a wig on, and he's got pearls and a dress. Yeah, he looks like Mrs. <laughs> Doubtfire. He definitely looks oh, like Mrs. Mrs. Doubtfire. Doubtfire. Yeah, um, and and it's just, you know, it's, it's a 90-second investment, and it's just a lot of fun. <laughs> um, and it's also from a Met production, I think, from 2007. Yeah. We hope you enjoyed this week's discussion of Engelbert Humperdinck's Hansel and Gretel. Join us next week in Algiers when we talk about Rossini's L'Italiana in Algeri. He Sang, She Sang is a production of Classical New York, WQXR. My name is Mike Schaub. And I'm Marin Lazian. Thank you for listening.